Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. After spending nearly two months sorting out and betting all of the witness statements regarding the movements of our four key players, it's now time to get into the nitty-gritty details of the case. Over the next several weeks, we'll be breaking down all of the specific elements of the crime scene itself. Fingerprints, DNA, the crime scene investigator's testimony, and other forensics. And today, we're going to take a look at two key elements of the state's case against Jennifer. Catalina's autopsy and the tale of the wallet that was found in Eva's apartment. This is Season 10, Episode 9, The Autopsy and the Wallet. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to start today with the question that has been burning in all of your minds for the last two weeks. Where and when was the wallet found? The story is a bit complicated. It goes something like this. On the day of the murder, both Eva and Jennifer are taken to the police station to give statements. That night, Eva returns to the apartment. She stays there that night. And Jennifer, Katie, and Youngster come by to visit after she returns from the station. The next day, Jennifer is arrested. And then the next day, Eva puts in her notice to move out of the apartment. She leaves with little more than her clothes. About six months later, a man named Urbano Madrano is contracted to paint the apartment so that it can be re-rented. While painting the apartment, he pulls the refrigerator away from the wall and notices the wallet tucked into the coils behind it. Urbano puts the wallet on the counter, and eventually maintenance man Keith Truesdale enters the apartment to do some final repairs and he finds the wallet on the counter. He then tracks down an off-duty Houston cop who moonlights doing security at the apartment complex. His name is Kendall Cobb. Truesdale informs Officer Cobb about what he had found in the apartment. Knowing that Eva's apartment had a direct connection to Catalina's murder, Cobb collects the wallet as evidence. And then he forgets about it. And several months later, it's finally turned in as evidence. It's dusted for prints and nothing usable was discovered. The prosecution then uses the wallet as evidence against Jennifer at trial. 
for the details of how all this went down. I'm going to walk you through the testimonies of Urbano Madrano, Keith Truesdale, and Kendall Cobb. We're going to start with Mr. Madrano. Urbano doesn't speak English, so a translator was used to get through his very short testimony. He worked for a painter contracted by the Green Arbor apartment complex. The routine was to spend every Monday at Green Arbor getting units ready for their next tenants. He explains that he pulled the refrigerator and stove out from the wall so that he could paint behind them. When he did so, he noticed a black wallet tucked into, quote, the middle of the coils behind the fridge. Mr. Madrano then looked through the wallet. He says that he was, quote, checking the papers. He's then asked on the stand if there was any kind of money or anything in there. And he responds, yes, but I put it back. Urbano says that there were two other men in the apartment painting with him. He says that after he checked through the contents of the wallet and finished painting, he left the wallet on the counter and locked up the apartment. Direct examination ends there, and Jennifer's attorney steps in for Cross. He first asks about the money, because as I've told you before, there was no money in the wallet. But evidently, Urbano either misspoke or there was a language barrier issue during direct. Coyne, during Cross, directly asks Urbano if there was any money in the wallet, and he replies, no, there was not any money in the wallet. Coyne then confirms that Urbano did not inform anyone about the wallet. He just left it on the counter and locked up when he left. And that's the end of his testimony. Neither the state or the defense asks about a date that the wallet was found. Next, we'll move on to Keith Truesdale's testimony. He testifies that he entered Eva's old apartment to check on the quality of the work done by the painters. And while inside, he notices the wallet on the counter. He also checks the contents and sees that the wallet belonged to Catalina. He then takes it to the office and calls security officer Kendall Cobb. Now, I'm going to do a little aside here. I'm trying to stay on topic, but as I'm reading through Truesdale's testimony, a few things are jumping out at me while I'm searching for the wallet parts. The whole testimony is posted on our website. First was the fact that on the morning of the murder, when the managers grabbed Keith to help get into Catalina's apartment, he testifies that they told him that they think there's a dead lady inside. I can't stress enough how big of a deal that is. Remember that in Pam Wiley's initial statement, she says that Eva came running in and screamed that the lady in the apartment below her was dead. After Jennifer was arrested, she changed her statement to say that Eva only said that the woman was screaming and needed help. But if that was true, then how did Truesdale know that he was going into the apartment to look for a dead lady? In his testimony, he even describes how nervous he was when he went inside. Quote, I stayed calm, but I was a little shaky. I have never seen anybody dead before, so I didn't know what to expect. So if Eva left for the manager's office while she was still hearing screaming from inside, and Pam was mistaken in her first statement where she says that Eva told her Catalina was dead, then how did Keith Truesdale know that he was going to find a dead body inside? The second thing that jumped out at me is the timing of Catalina complaining to the management about the traffic in Eva's apartment. She complained the day before she was killed. From Truesdale's testimony, quote, I lived in a building over, and I always saw a lot of activity over there. Coyne then asked him if Catalina had ever complained about the traffic, and this was Truesdale's response, quote, She made a complaint the day before. Now, getting back to the wallet, 
During Cross, Coyne just asked Keith repeat that he had found the wallet on the counter and that it had been initially discovered by the painters. So at this point, our chain of custody is Urbano the painter finding the wallet and leaving it on the counter, and then Truesdale finding it on the counter, and he gives it to Officer Cobb. And to this point, we still don't have a date when the wallet was found. And so now, let's move into Officer Cobb's testimony. Kendall Cobb had been a Houston police officer in the juvenile division for three years at the time of the trial. He was also working part-time as a security officer for the Green Arbor Apartments. Based on the beginning of direct examination, no one seems to know the date that the wallet was found. Let me read to you from the transcript. This is D.A. Glaser questioning Cobb. Quote, I want to take you back to maybe May, June of 1997, this year, and ask you whether or not you received a wallet from Keith Truesdale at the Green Arbor Apartments. Cobb, I did. May or June, that's as precise as we get. Now, to put that into perspective, May 1st would have been six months after the murder. And that's just when Truesdale found the wallet. Who knows how long it was before that when Mr. Madrano actually found it in the coils. But the chain of custody issues don't stop there. Far from it. From the transcript, Cobb. My intentions were to tag the wallet in the property room, which is our procedure when we receive evidence to an offense. Glazer. Now, tell me what you did with the wallet. Cobb. I inadvertently held onto the wallet for an extended period of time before being notified and made aware of my lapse of duty. Cobb goes on to explain that when he was approached by the homicide division when they asked him where it was, that he thought that he had already tagged the wallet. At that point, quote, approximately two months had passed, he then tagged the wallet and logged it into evidence. He says that after Detective Allen asked him about it, he found it in his personal vehicle. And at this point, Coyne jumps in and asks to take Cobb on voir dire. He's attempting to establish that the wallet should be thrown out due to a chain of custody error. He does get Cobb to admit over the months that the wallet was in his possession that there were many occasions where the evidence was out of sight and could have been tampered with. This is Coyne's objection directly from the transcript. Quote, Judge, I'm going to object to these because there is no chain of custody here. There is absolutely no way that this officer can testify that he knew what happened to these items. Between the time he received them and the time that he found them again, they may have been tampered with, contaminated, they may have been altered. He cannot testify that they were in the same condition that they were in when he received them. And the judge overrules the objection, and Glazer passes the witness for cross-examination. During Cross, Coyne confronts Cobb about the discrepancies between his written report and reality. Now let me read to you Officer Cobb's report so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. Here's his report. Quote, On Thursday, the 28th of August, 1997, Officer Cobb received a call from Sergeant Allen of the Homicide Division inquiring about an article of evidence that was allegedly tagged at the HPD property room. Sergeant Allen wanted to know where this item was after he could not locate it in the property room. Officer Cobb explained to the investigator he believed the article to be tagged approximately two months ago. However, he would double-check his file for clarity on the matter. After a much more extensive search, Officer Cobb was able to locate this piece of evidence. The article, a small black leather clutch wallet, was given to Officer Cobb by Daniel Keith Truesdale. 
Mr. Truesdale was working as a maintenance man for the Green Arbor apartment complex, where officer provides courtesy officer assistance. The wallet was found behind a couch in the living room area of apartment number 58. The apartment is an upstairs unit that faces east and sits directly above apartment number 57 and next to apartment number 56. The officer took custody of the wallet and contacted the homicide division. Officer Cobb spoke with Sergeant Topol, who accepted the hold on the wallet to be tagged in the HPD property room. The wallet remained in Officer Cobb's file until the 28th of August 1997 when investigating Sergeant Allen contacted the officer requesting knowledge of its whereabouts. Officer Cobb met with Sergeant Allen and explained he thought the item had already been entered. Sergeant Allen showed him this was not the case, and he had the officer tag the wallet immediately. The wallet had a small speck of white paint on the side of it. The inside of the wallet housed identification, a blood card, credit cards, visa, girlands, etc., and miscellaneous papers. Officer Cobb transported the wallet to the property room personally to maintain the chain and care of custody and submitted it as evidence to this offense. It's pretty obvious from this report that Cobb's intention here was to cover up his mistake and make it appear as though there had been a proper chain of custody. He says that after he received the wallet, he placed it in his, quote, file. And, quote, the wallet remained in Officer Cobb's file until the 28th of August. And then the report ends with, quote, Officer Cobb transported the wallet to the property room personally to maintain the chain and care of custody. While on the witness stand, Cobb explains that this straight-up lie is a, quote, play on words. He says that by his file, he meant the grocery bag in his personal vehicle. It's also apparent from the report that Cobb didn't really know where the wallet came from. He writes that it was found behind a couch in Eva's apartment. On the stand, Cobb claims that that's what Truesdale told him when he turned the wallet over. But in any case, this is the first solid date that we have. The wallet found in Eva's apartment was logged into evidence on August 28, 1997, 10 months after the murder. And that's it. That's the tale of the wallet. It was missed by investigators during their searches of Eva's apartment, although to be fair, those searches do not appear to have been particularly thorough. They were basically just looking for bloody clothes. But then around six to seven months later, maybe sooner than that, a painter found it behind the fridge and left it on the counter after thumbing through it. And then some unknown time after that, the maintenance man found it on the counter and he turned it over to police. It was then tossed into a grocery bag and rode around in an officer's personal vehicle for several months before it was ultimately logged as evidence and used to help convict Jennifer. The wallet was never tested for DNA, but it was tested for fingerprints, as I mentioned before, and nothing usable was found. The wallet, in my opinion, clearly indicates that someone who had been in Eva's apartment after the murder was involved in the attack on Catalina. While it was a clusterfuck for sure, I don't believe that we have any reason to believe that the wallet was planted evidence. I believe that Urbano found it behind the fridge just like he said. So the question is, who put the wallet there? I've seen on our social media discussion groups a lot of thoughts and theories about this. 
But here's my opinion. Anything that you can say about either Jennifer's or Eva's behavior regarding the wallet would also apply just the same to the other one. This is what I mean. So some people say that Eva wouldn't have left it there. She would have taken it with her when she moved out, or she would have taken it out to a dumpster somewhere. She would never just leave it in the apartment where it could be found by police later. But the same could be true of Jennifer. They were both back in the apartment on the night of the murder, after the police had searched the apartment, and after they had both been to the station to give statements. Either one of them, had they been involved, probably should have got the wallet out of there. Personally, I believe that whoever put it there took it during the attack. They took any cash out of it that was there, and then since police were right outside at that point, they tucked the wallet into the fridge coils because they, number one, didn't want it found in the apartment by police, and number two, it was useless to them at that point. They got out of it what they wanted, and the wallet was just trash at that point. And then the next day, Jennifer's arrested, and then the day after that, Eva moves out. I think that it was left because it was forgotten about. But let's look for a minute at the possibility of Jennifer being the one who put it there. If you're in the camp that believes Jennifer is guilty, then you must believe that her second written statement was a true confession. Otherwise, I don't know how you can conclude that she's guilty. It's literally the only evidence against her whatsoever. So if she's guilty and she truly confessed, then why not mention the wallet? She gives detailed descriptions of every element of the attack, which, as I've stated on multiple occasions, demonstrated zero guilty knowledge of the crime. But in that statement, she says that she is the one who looked through both purses and found the car keys. She says that she gave the keys to one of her accomplices and they left the apartment. I asked this question weeks ago when we broke down her confession, and I'm going to ask it again now. Why does she not mention the wallet? She's confessing, right? She's telling the truth. But she never says one word about even finding the wallet, taking it out of the purses that she was looking through, or hiding it in the apartment. And that's the kind of guilty knowledge that you're looking for in a true confession. Where's the wallet? Anyone involved in the crime would know where the wallet is. And that's a question that not only should have been asked, but I'm certain that Alan asked it. And when she didn't have the answer, he left it out of the report. Otherwise, why is that detail missing? I think it's because Detective Allen didn't know where the wallet was at that point. Just like he couldn't feed her the details about where the flower pots came from, he also couldn't feed her details about where the wallet was located. Because he didn't know. And in my opinion, neither did Jennifer. I'm also going to ask you to ponder this question as we go into break and transition into the autopsy. Ask yourself this. Why would two adult, experienced thieves give literally the only thing they got of value out of that robbery and murder to the 15-year-old lookout? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Catalina's autopsy was performed by Dr. Joyce Carter. I'll be posting the actual autopsy report as well as Dr. Carter's full testimony on our website. I'm going to do my best to break down her testimony here, but to be completely transparent, I'm struggling at the moment to put this together. Like I said in the follow-up, my wife and I both contracted COVID during our trip to Las Vegas. We're both doing okay, but I can't seem to kick a splitting headache today, and I'm having a really hard time focusing. So, I'm going to zip through this as best I can and definitely fact-check my work against the documents posted. Thanks in advance for your patience, and here we go. The testimony begins with Dr. Carter's credentials. She served as the chief medical examiner in Washington, D.C. for four and a half years before moving on to Harris County. Before that, she was a deputy chief medical examiner for the U.S. Air Force. After going through all of Dr. Carter's CV in the testimony, Glaser gets right into Catalina's autopsy. First, she describes the external examination of the body. Quote, There were several lacerations or tears on the skin, on the face, and on the scalp of the body. There were numerous sharp force injuries to the chest, the front of the chest, the abdomen, and also on the back. The clothing on the body was bloody. She then begins breaking down the specific injuries, working from the head down. She describes numerous lacerations to the head. These lacerations were caused from blunt force trauma, meaning she was hit with something rather than stabbed or cut to create these lacerations. She notes that there are several of these types of wounds on the right side of Catalina's head. Some cut all the way down to the skull, but there were no skull fractures, but the brain was swollen. There were no injuries to the neck. Moving down, Catalina suffered several stab wounds to the chest. Dr. Carter describes them as follows, quote, The wounds to the chest were all stab wounds, and they are penetrating into the soft tissue of the chest. They are almost in a horizontal line going across the chest and entering the thoracic cavity, fracturing the sternum or main bone going down the front of the chest. The heart had been injured by a stab wound. The right lung had been injured by several stab wounds. The liver had been injured by stab wounds. And the aorta, the main vessel in the body, was injured by stab wounds. I feel like in reading this that whoever attacked Catalina had to have been a powerful person. Looking at the photos, they're just like the doctor describes. At least the main and most obvious injuries. They're in a straight line across her chest, starting to the left of the sternum and continuing about an inch, inch and a half apart from there, across her chest, into her right armpit, and onto the right side of her back. The stab wound that really got my attention was the stab to the sternum. I've seen this type of wound in other cases, and typically the thick bone of the sternum stops the knife in its tracks. But in this case, the stab was so strong that it fractured the sternum, which would also indicate, I think, a pretty sturdy knife. In total, according to the autopsy report, Catalina was stabbed 12 times in the chest, back, and abdomen. 
and several of those wounds would have been fatal on their own. The killer connected with her heart, lung, liver, and aorta on multiple occasions, and they just kept stabbing. And that's not to mention all of the other cutting and blunt force wounds. In a report, Dr. Carter does break down the specifics of each stab wound, and she also testifies about those here in just a minute. But unfortunately, she doesn't go into the kind of detail that we've seen in autopsies from our other cases. There are two important things that aren't included. The depths of the wounds and a description of the edges of the cuts on the skin. And the second part is really frustrating. Typically, we see descriptions of the wounds as the width of the cut and then which side or if both sides are tapered. That tells us not only the orientation of the knife, but also if it's a single-edge blade or a double-edge blade. In the testimony, Dr. Park goes on to describe several cutting wounds to Catalina's hands and arms. They were shallow cutting wounds on the tips of the fingers, one on the palm of the right hand, and at the base of the left thumb, as well as some abrasions on the left forearm. These wounds appear to be defensive in nature. That's how she describes them. Dr. Carter then goes on to note that she clipped Catalina's fingernails for evidence and that although there was no evidence of sexual assault, she did collect a sexual assault kit during the autopsy. Next, Glacier has Dr. Carter describe each of the 12 wounds in detail. They're listed in the autopsy report, and this is how she describes them here as well, as A through L, in no particular order. I will tell you she ends up getting distracted and doesn't get through all of them, but I'll break down what she testifies to here. Wound A is a stab on the left side of the chest, slightly below the breast. It was shallow and only penetrated soft tissue. Wound B is also a stab on the left side of the chest. It penetrated a little deeper. It reached the inside of the chest cavity, but did not reach the lung. Then wound C, she says, only penetrated soft tissue. So these are three of the wounds on the chest that are pretty large when you look at them, but they didn't go very deep, and none of them would have been fatal. Wound D is on the center of the chest. I believe this is the wound that fractured the sternum. She's not real clear in her testimony or in her report. But this wound passed through the chest cavity and into the heart. This would have been a fatal wound. Wound E also penetrates the chest and into the heart, and also fatal. Wound F is a stab to the right side of the chest. It penetrated the aorta also fatal. But what's interesting about this wound is that the tear on the skin is only seven-eighths of an inch. And several of the others, specifically the wounds that didn't penetrate very deep, all made a tear between one and a quarter inch and two inches, giving the appearance, especially to a layman looking from the outside, that a very large knife was used. But this wound that penetrated deep all the way into the aorta was only seven-eighths of an inch wide. And then from here, this all gets very confusing because there was no diagram or autopsy photo submitted as evidence at trial. I don't know if no photos were taken and she never made a diagram or if the state just chose not to use them. But Dr. Carter is pointing out wounds on the crime scene photos as she goes along, not autopsy photos. And without being there in person and only reading the transcript, it's really hard to track which wound is which. And then once the crime scene photos are brought out while she's looking at them, she jumps from wound F to wound I. We never get a description of G or H. But she breaks down wounds I, J, K, and L. 
which are four wounds on the right side of Catalina's back. She says that all four wounds penetrated the right lung, and two of them also pierced the liver and the aorta. She says that all four of these wounds would have been fatal. Looking at the autopsy report, I think that we get our best look into the possible size of the knife used with wound eye. Like I said, several of these stabs created a one and a quarter inch or larger gash on the skin, but wound eye only created a one inch wide cut, and it's described as, quote, deeply penetrating the lower lobe of the right lung. So we have a deep wound where the knife penetrated deep into the chest cavity, and it only created a one inch cut on the skin. What that means is that the knife could be smaller than one inch wide, because both the victim and the attacker are moving, but it cannot be larger. Remember when I told you that the best way to determine if a detective is feeding information to someone in their statement is to look for mistakes? The example I used back then was the blood on the plastic in the knife drawer. At the time Jennifer was interviewed, Detective Allen thought that there was blood on the plastic. And sure enough, we see Jennifer in her statement describe a series of events where she would have gotten blood on it. But as it turned out later, it wasn't blood at all. And I think we may have a similar situation here with the knife. Wound eye is described as being stabbed straight in. Quote, back to front, no angle. And it's also the deepest wound that's described. And it only made a one inch wide wound. But at the time Detective Allen interviewed Jennifer, the autopsy wasn't done yet, and he would have seen Catalina at the crime scene with a series of huge wounds on her chest. They're all an inch and a quarter to two inches wide, which looks like Catalina was stabbed with a very large knife, like a butcher knife. I just went inside the house and measured mine. I have two sets of knives and the butcher knife in both sets measures one and three quarters inch wide. But we have wounds I and F that were both deep penetrating wounds. F was seven eighths of an inch wide, and I was one inch. The knife that made these wounds was not by any means a large knife. Nothing like a butcher knife, more like a steak size knife or a pocket knife. But Detective Allen didn't know that when he took Jennifer's statement. And let me read you what she said about the knife in her confession. Quote, I pulled the plastic up and Tim said, damn, come on. And he grabbed the knife. The knife was a large butcher knife. There is absolutely zero possibility that a, quote, large butcher knife stabbed deep enough into Catalina's chest to penetrate into her lung and into her aorta and leave seven-eighths of an inch and one-inch wounds. Zero chance. Getting back into Dr. Carter's testimony, District Attorney Glazer used a bit of sleight of hand to tie Jennifer's confession into the medical evidence. And I have no doubt that this exchange was rehearsed. That's just my opinion, but my thinking is that Dr. Carter would not offer false testimony. It's completely normal for attorneys and prosecutors to meet with their witnesses prior to trial to prepare. I've done it many times in my former career where I had to testify as an expert witness. And it usually goes something like this. The attorney will ask me how I'm going to answer a particular question. And if they don't like my answer, 
Then they would say, well, what if I word it like this? Then could you say yes? And I believe that that's exactly what happened here. Listen to how Glazer words this question. Quote, Are those consistent with injuries that could have been caused by a knife or a butcher knife? Dr. Carter replies, Yes, they are. And then Glazer repeats the same turn of phrase in the follow-up question. And is a knife or a butcher knife a deadly weapon? Carter replies, It can be. And there you have it. The jury heard what sounded like Dr. Carter confirming that the wounds were consistent with a butcher knife. But that's not what she actually said. What she actually said was that the injuries were consistent with a knife or a butcher knife. One or the other, but not both. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15000 178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Glazer concludes direct with the talk screen. Catalina had no drugs or alcohol in her system. And then, one last interesting detail. Glazer asks if there were any pills inside of Catalina's body. Dr. Carter says that there were not. Now, when we look at the crime scene photos, we see that there are several pills out on the counter, an open prescription bottle, and a blister pack of iron supplements that have been pulled out of their box. Just something to think about, at least I think so since my working hypothesis is that Catalina was in the kitchen when the attack began. Perhaps she was just getting ready to take her morning medication when the killers broke in. Coyne starts out cross-examination with kind of a curveball. He presents Dr. Carter with the police photos showing the cuts on Jennifer's hand taken on the day of the murder. He asks her if she can determine if these are fresh cuts. He presents her with State's Exhibit 38, which I'll have on the docs on our website for today's episode. The photo appears to be very clear to me, but the doctor says that she can't tell because it's fuzzy. I like the move here, but it didn't work out. Coyne then moves on to try to get Dr. Carter to acknowledge that based on the wounds, the attacker and Catalina would have had direct contact with each other. And she says, not necessarily. He then tries to get her to testify that the killer would have had blood on them, and we get the same answer. He then moves on to asking her why she didn't measure the depth of the stab wounds, and she says that it's too difficult because the organs in the body are free-moving, so she can't get a good measurement. Dr. Carter is not playing ball at all, and unfortunately, Coyne isn't prepared for this testimony. Dr. Carter actually acknowledges to one of his questions that she doesn't know what type of knife was used. But I don't think Coyne had studied the case enough to ask the right questions here. 
Now, if it were me doing the questioning, and of course I'm not a lawyer, but I would ask if a large butcher knife could make a deep penetrating stab wound and only leave a one-inch cut on the skin. But he doesn't ask that question. He just moves on. He asked if a great amount of force was used. And she says, not necessarily. If the knife was sharp, it wouldn't require much force. And then he directs her attention to State's Exhibit 28. This is the picture of the pan in the sink, and there's also a knife next to it. He asked her if this type of knife could have been used to create the injuries. It's much smaller than a butcher knife. It looks to me like a small steak knife. And she says that it's possible. And then he just lets it go. And I'm finding myself exceedingly frustrated reading this. He needs, for Jennifer's sake, to drive the point home that the injuries could not have been caused by the butcher knife. And he's not even trying. The only thing I could think of is maybe he actually fell for the knife or butcher knife routine during direct. Coyne concludes Cross by asking Dr. Carter if she's examined the fingernail clippings. And she did not. She just sent them to the lab. And with that, Dr. Carter was released from testimony. And also with that, I need to issue a correction. I said a few weeks ago that the autopsy indicated that the metal plant stand matched up with the injuries on Catalina's head. And evidently, I was wrong about that. Not about the match, but about where the information came from. I read it in the file somewhere, and I wrote it down in my notes, but for the life of me right now, I cannot recall where. I suspect it was either in one of the detective's testimonies or in one of the forensics examiner's testimonies. So I apologize for the misinformation. Disregard that for the time being until I can source where I read it. Dr. Carter's testimony was short and sweet. In most cases that I've investigated, especially cases like this with multiple stab wounds, the medical examiner's testimony tend to go on for 100 pages or sometimes 2 or 300 pages. But in this case, we get 42. In reading it, I can see how it would have been somewhat neutral for the jury. The state simply established the cause of death, and the defense didn't do any damage at all. I'd call this battle a win for the state, but only because Glazer managed to slip in the butcher knife connection in front of the jury. But the frustrating part is that Dr. Carter's testimony should have been a big win for the defense. Once again, Coyne was not prepared. Just like when he cross-examined Eva before having ever even read her statements. If he could have drawn out from Dr. Carter the fact that a butcher knife was not the murder weapon, I think that it would have gone a long way towards discrediting Jennifer's confession. In regards to the wallet, I believe that it holds the key to this case. My recommendation to the family and to Jennifer's attorney has been to test the wallet for touch DNA. Either Jennifer's or Eva's DNA is going to be on that wallet. One of them is lying, and I believe that the wallet will tell us who. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. 
All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Merb Gaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Sky Stream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Sky Stream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18 month minimum term. Cut off time supply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday, 18 plus terms apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.